If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to another monthly update episode. Today, we'll be giving updates on the Manny Ellis trial, the plane that lost its door and had to land at PDX, updates on charges from Cop City. Josh will share some info from Tiger King, the conclusion and outcome of the Elijah McClain trial, news about convicted murderer Scott Peterson, and Emily will talk about an episode she'll be doing soon with a very exciting guest. All of that along with Patreon shoutouts, bloopers, and more. So let's recap January. We'd like to start today with some very special thank yous to our newest Patreon members. Annie P. from Vanita, Oregon. Priya R. from Dublin, Ireland. Phyllis M. from Everett, Washington. And Abby W. from Kaiser, Oregon. Thank you. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for paying for things like new underwear for the group. (laughs) Boy, do we need them. Just kidding. Bail. You, You help us keep the lights on in the studio. That's right. And if you would like to hear your name on an episode, you can go to patreon.com and sign up. And just for $5 a month, you could be the next name we read and slightly mess up. (laughs) Only a little bit. (laughs) We only try re-recording a few times. (laughs) We'll be starting today with an update or conclusion, rather, to the trials surrounding the death of Manny Ellis. Quick recap, Manuel Manny Ellis was a 33-year-old black man who was, per witness testimony and video, killed by police. Timothy Ranke, Christopher Burbank, and Matthew Collins were the officers at the scene, therefore they were the ones charged with his death. Collins and Burbank were charged with second-degree murder and manslaughter, and Ranke was charged with just manslaughter. It was March 3, 2020, when Manny was walking home from his neighborhood 7-Eleven with donuts when he fatefully walked past the police car containing Burbank and Collins. They decided to question him after he passed, accusing him of attempting to open a car door at that same intersection. A verbal confrontation ensued, quickly followed by a physical one. The officers accused Manny of hysteria, having superhuman strength, and proceeded to tase and attack him. Well, that was what the officers were saying. The cameras and human witnesses all claimed the same thing. Manny walked by the car. The officer in the passenger side opened the door to clip Manny. Manny put his hands up, and within seconds, the officers were on top of him, soon putting their arms around his neck and a knee on his back. The state argued that, based on witness testimony and videos from phones and ring cameras, it was the excessive force the officer used that killed Manny, a very similar situation to how George Floyd was killed. 
The defense argued that Manny's heart condition and the methamphetamine found in his system, as he was a man struggling with recovery, was what killed him. Not when the officers put pressure on his body and a spit hood over his face while he cried out that he couldn't breathe. On top of that, it was said after the trial that the biggest issue in getting a fair trial was that the defense didn't so much cast doubt or present a different perspective, but they put Manny on trial. They talked about his issues and history of addiction. They spoke about two previous arrests in 2015 and 2019. It wasn't so much, did the cops do the right thing or did they overreact and use excessive force, so much as, come on, don't you think this black druggy guy probably did something to deserve to be killed by the police? The trial of the officers went on for over two months. There were multiple issues with jurors. In late December, two jurors were replaced in as many days. The jury had just begun deliberations when one juror had a family emergency. There were concerns the trial would have to start over, but the replacement juror was used. The following day, a different jury member tested positive for COVID and had to be replaced by the second alternate. When it came to the question of if Manny deserved what happened to him, the jury answered with yes, acquitting all three officers of all charges. The courtroom gasped. Protesters, led by Monet Carter-Mixon, Manny's sister, filled the streets. Many carried signs, held a vigil, gathered around the mural of Manny, and chanted Manny's last words, Can't breathe, sir. Those words had been met with a shut the fuck up by one of the officers. Governor Inslee of Washington released a statement after the verdict saying, Regardless of how people feel about today's verdict, everyone should remember that this case began when the Ellis family experienced a profound loss that was not properly investigated. The Washington Coalition for Police Accountability said, The not guilty verdict is further proof that the system is broken, failing the very people it should be serving. After the verdict, the city of Tacoma was still working on their internal investigation. On January 16th, the results were in. The officers did nothing wrong, but they would not be remaining on the force. I don't know about you, but that math isn't mathing. After three and a half years of paid leave, a decision was made. The three officers agreed to resign from the Tacoma Police Force. They will each receive a golden parachute of $500,000. So not just three years of pay for no work, but half a million dollars for quitting the job that they were bad at. Kind of a dream. I mean, I hope for that at my work, but... <laughs> I, if only I could be completely incompetent and be given half a million dollars. It happens when you don't want to get sued. <laughs> Well, speaking of wasted money, Manny's family rightfully took the officers to court for a federal wrongful death lawsuit, and they were awarded $4 million. So not only did they lose a family member and Tacoma lost a community member and children lost their uncle and the church lost a musician, but the city of Tacoma and the state of Washington lost $5.5 million, which is not counting the paid leave and the cost of the trials. So I would guess, I don't know, maybe closer to $7 million. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I really would have loved to have $7 million go into treatment or housing or literally anything else. Not saying don't pay the family. I mean that the death never should have happened, nor all of these costs. As for the officers, Collins has moved out of Washington. Burbank's lawyers say they don't believe that he'll return to being a cop, thank goodness, and Ranky's future remains unknown. Well, there are a few non-criminal things in the news that caused a stir online and a little closer to home for us. 
On Friday, January 5th, 2024, a flight from Portland International Airport headed to Ontario International Airport in Southern California faced a near disaster. Just after takeoff, one of the doors blew out from the side of the plane, which was a Boeing 737 MAX. For those of us who aren't plane experts, here's some plane context for you. The Boeing 737 MAX is the fourth generation of Boeing 737, and this type of plane typically offers 138 to 204 seats. So it's, you know, not huge, but it's still a lot of people. In 2019, these planes were grounded worldwide due to a terrible malfunction. On October 29, 2018, a domestic flight from Jakarta to Pangkal, Penang, Indonesia, crashed and experienced a malfunctioning MCAS flight control system. All 189 people aboard died. Then it came out that the plane had been there two months, and just the day before the crash, another flight had experienced the same issue, but without a total failure. So they knew it was an issue, yet they still flew the plane. So that's why I beg to differ that this is not true crime related. I feel like some crimes have gone on here. I would agree with you there. So Boeing then, of course, addressed the problem. And what did they do? Well, they issued an operational manual guidance to address a faulty cockpit reading. So does that mean like what to do if this happens? I think like a calibration, maybe like this is how you calibrate it. So it doesn't. I don't know. I I couldn't get my hands on the details. Like, hey, we know this might happen here. This will help you. Right. So the problem is, though, on March 10th of 2019, there was yet another disaster. A flight leaving Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, headed to Nairobi, Kenya, experienced a malfunctioning flight control system similar to the Jakarta flight. This plane also crashed, killing 157 people aboard. That's the entire crew and all the passengers. So let's go back to our situation on January 5th. The very same kind of plane was experiencing a major malfunction during takeoff. Roughly six minutes after Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 left the ground in Portland, Oregon, a rear mid-cabin exit door blew. Later, this was determined to be due to a faulty door plug. Now, after this happened, the plane experienced uncontrolled decompression and oxygen masks deployed. Everyone had to put them on. By some miracle, the two seats directly next to that door were empty. So the, mm. no one was sucked about, out the door. I don't know about miracle. I know. I have maybe my own pre-planning. On that. Maybe, maybe it was, mm-hmm. hey, guys, we're having kind of like, here's your manual in case that happens. Hey, we suggest maybe not selling those seats. I'm going to have to agree with you there. That poor boy's shirt was sucked oh, right off yeah, his body. Oh, I was going to say that. So the plane immediately turned around and landed back in Portland, and none of the 177 people aboard experienced any serious issues. There were some lost items. A cell phone was sucked through the door, and it was later found in a field, and it was fine. No mm-hmm. no injury to it. A child's shirt, as you said, was completely pulled off of them when the door broke off. Luckily, his mother had held on to him, so he didn't go flying. Mm-hmm. Now, there has been an incident investigation where it was found that the loose door plug bolts were found on other parts of the aircraft. Subsequently, all Boeing 730 MAX aircrafts were grounded by Alaska Airlines. And I know right now they're offering people who purchased flights on that type of plane can change their flight right now. I just Um, got an email about it. That's nice. Now, within 24 hours of the very near tragedy, Alaska Airlines gave a full refund to each passenger, and they also provided $1,500 cash to each person to cover any of their immediate needs, whatever those might be. 
I don't know. How do you feel about $1,500 for a near-death experience? Okay, I guess I won't sue you. You did give me $1,500. I mean, that's nice and all, but a lot of these people are going to need therapy. They're mm-hmm. never going to want to get on a plane again. Yeah. Now, S- Some employee there had to crunch some numbers and oh, determine yeah. that that was the value uh, of oh, a human life. Oh, you know, life. that's their entire job is risk assessment. Yeah, they probably like, have a little folder and go like, okay, door yep. flies off, door flies off. It was six off. minutes when the issue it's happened, like and that correlates to this amount. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's bullshit. Yeah. So a lot of people have found it to be unacceptable. And uh, when I wrote this, 20 passengers have filed suit, both to the manufacturer of the air- and the airline. And so we're likely going to see more passengers sue in coming weeks. There's a Seattle law firm who's proposing a class action suit against Boeing. And to me, it sounds like it could be pretty successful with the track record this plane has. Mm -hmm. Now, those of you who have been following this crash may have read any number of the human interest stories that have come from it. I recently learned that someone I know was on that flight. A good friend of mine and former coworker received a text from her boyfriend on January 5th. and He was on that plane. And he was incredibly concerned that it was going to be his last day of living. He sent her message after message detailing how frightening the situation was and the lack of communication to passengers. The crew was not talking to them. They had no idea what was going on. Um, He told her he loved her several times and asked her to tell his parents that he loved them if anything happened. Uh, A video of their text exchange has gone viral on Instagram, and I'll be sure to put that in our blog so you can read that. And I'm sure we'll have an update on how those lawsuits are going uh, in the coming weeks. And until then, wear your seatbelt at all times when you're flying. You really never know when you could get sucked out of a blown out door. Yeah. Well, and going back to what you said about the track record of the plane, I believe that plane specifically had been marked as do not fly over open water. Wow. Like they were concerned. Are you kidding me? With its ability to... Remain Why in the fucking air. continue using a plane? Isn't that, and then uh, I think it was Colbert or somebody was like, oh, so because we'd rather have it just crash into a city? Like, wow. wait, isn't that double dangerous? If you Yeah, because you could kill other people yeah. and infrastructure. And you would think they wouldn't say that because there's only so many lives lost on the plane versus. Exactly. Wow. So that's part of my theory of what are the odds that, an, that a window seat and uh, the middle seat next to it? Most planes I've been on. You're so mm. lucky if it's not sold out. I'm going to have to agree with you on that. I can't help but think that maybe they knew more than they're saying. Mm-hmm. And as of yesterday, I think I saw something where they haven't confirmed it, but it's looking more and more like basically they forgot to put the bolts back on that door is what happened. They're just they haven't Jeez. found the bolts because there weren't any bolts. So somebody's getting in trouble. Do they know how long the door was like that? When was when were the bolts not tightened? I don't know, yeah. but I mean they are saying there were other planes with similar issues yeah. too. So it's like was that even part of their checking system? Yeah, the bolts basically weren't part of that checklist. Oh is God. what I'm gathering, That's but so I think ridiculous. I think I'd rather I'd prefer a new plane to one that they're modding, right? like modifying. No, I thank know, you. just Freaking or want, stop buying from Boeing. I think that's what we're going to see me, uh, happen. Give me a hot, fresh fuselage. <laughs> Don't start cutting into it. <laughs> the head of the NTSB was saying, thank goodness it did happen when it did, because if they had been much higher, it would have been full disaster, like immediate explosion kind of a thing if the door had come up, if they were at cruising altitude. So I have to tell you something. Right now, um, I've been on live on TikTok. <laughs> Okay. And somebody just wrote a comment that said aviation mechanics have to carry as much insurance as a surgeon. Like the mechanics. Wow. 
I had no idea. That's interesting. Thank you for that. D2D98 exclamation. <laughs> no magic mushrooms. That was the other PDX thing. Let, lest us forget that, uh, what, a couple months before the door issue, we had the guy who was a pilot who was oh. allowed in the cockpit and they were leaving PDX. And not long after, he reached up to like the double handles that yeah. basically explode the plane and didn't he get charged with attempted murder like eight, 80 counts I yeah think? that was crazy and I forgot then he about was that. like oh i did shrooms yesterday and everyone's like mm, i'm sorry no <laughs> a lot of people do shrooms and don't try to kill people yeah <laughs> and if you're so out of it that you think you're gonna blow up the plane how'd you even function enough to get onto the plane you got through security you got your stuff packed. wow so that'll that'll be an interesting trial when that goes through We'll have to maybe do a Patreon. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) January 18th marked one year since the death of Manuel Esteban Perez Tehran, who was non-binary and went by Tortuguita, who was shot and killed while protesting the building of Cop City in Atlanta, Georgia. I spoke all about Tortuguita's death in the same episode as Manny Ellis's Unknown Trouble. A quick recap of the case. Tortuguita had been part of a larger protest group that was advocating against the construction of a massive cop training ground called Cop City. Some of the biggest concerns are that the training area would destroy a large forest area that could lead to flooding the local neighborhoods. That area also backs up to a predominantly black neighborhood, causing more trauma as they listen to shooting, shouting, and general cop noise. It also seemed unreasonable that the $90 million being used to construct it couldn't be used to build up the communities instead of turning the Atlanta police into the military. It was reported that on that January morning, when the SWAT team was moving in because the police wanted the protesters cleared out, they encountered Tortuguita. The officers commanded that they get out of their tent, but they refused. Officers responded by using a pepper ball launcher. Once the pepper ball was in the tent, Tortuguita pulled out a 9mm gun and opened fire, shooting one of the officers. Six other officers returned fire into the tent, killing them. Before the officers got to the tent, they reported what they believed to be an IED, or improvised explosive device, that it went off at the tent, as though it had been planned by Tortuguita as a way to continue to harm the officers even after death. However, that was only the police account. Others at Cop City not only saw and heard other things, but there was even a video and an agreeing officer that implied the injured officer had been hit by friendly fire. The remaining protesters wouldn't believe that the person they knew and respected for their stance of peace and protection would, without reason, open fire on officers and plant a bomb. An independent autopsy found that Tortuguita was still sitting in a meditation pose with their hands up when they were shot. The county autopsy found at least 57 bullet holes in their body. Additionally, no gunpowder residue was found on their hands. The body cam footage confirmed the initial shot that injured the first officer and initiated the shooting was from a fellow officer. George Christian, the DA for the case, came to the decision last October that the lethal force used was objectively reasonable under the circumstances and no charges would be brought to the police. The police who not only shot an unarmed person sitting in a tent, but also each other. It was found that, given the situation, Tortuguita was considered an immediate threat to the SWAT team. Since the shooting, 61 of the activists have been arrested and charged with a variety of charges, including racketeering and intimidation. So, I guess at least they're not getting shot. But we'll have to wait and see what comes of Cop City. 
You guys remember March 2020? Barely. <laughs> yeah, vaguely. The pandemic was raging. We were isolated. We were afraid. We were washing our groceries. <laughs> you don't Truly. you don't do that still? Should I? I mean, mo- a lot of people recommend putting your fruit in like uh, the sink with a little bit of vinegar to get oh. the wax off of it and everything. Uh, we don't buy fruit. <laughs> you mean fruit roll? Oh, that's right. You guys have scurvy. <laughs> fruit snacks. My point is that we wanted to uh, unplug from all the stress of possibly dying by going outside. And we all logged into Netflix and we watched a new documentary series called Tiger King. Oh, yeah. We all did. Mm-hmm. That's all we talked about. There was nothing else to talk about, except I'm scared. You may recall the Netflix limited series that focused on tigers, Joe Exotic, Carol Baskin, and all sorts of madness, conspiracy, and murder. One man who was in the documentary and probably later wished he wasn't (laughs) was Bhagavan Doc Antle. He was the ponytailed, chin-bearded weirdo. (laughs) He owned the uh, rival zoo or rival animal abuse facility. (laughs) In, I think, South Carolina. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Didn't he have, like, a lot of young girls? He certainly did. So, yeah, there was the original Tiger King series that came out that focused mainly on Joe Exotic. And then December, I believe, of the same year, a three-part little mini-mini series came out focusing on the Doc Antle story. And that's where those allegations came out that he... Well, let me me quote... Let me just kind of look at this uh, article real quick. This is from WBTW.com. This is a... That's a South Carolina news station. So this was in, uh, these accusations stem from when he was living in Virginia in the 1980s, and he was accused of having sexual relationships with multiple minors as an adult. Uh, and see, let's see. It also said he conspired to forge the signature of a 15-year-old's father in order to become legally married to her, <gasps> physically abused multiple women, and used deceptive financial practices as it relates to a fundraising organization. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, the women that came forward said they were 14 or 15 when that happened. Oof. And he, of course, denied it. And I don't know if anything came from it, but I believe him. Yeah. Not the doc. No. <laughs> I believe the women. Yes. So back to the original series. To no one's surprise, Joe Exotic was later arrested and charged with 17 counts of animal abuse on top of two counts of attempted murder for hire. You might recall the intense grudge he held against one Carol Baskin, who claimed her husband was dead but he was later spotted alive in Costa Rica. Maybe not. Maybe she killed him. But we're not getting into that. That's that's not what this is about. Anyway, Joe was sentenced to 22 years for those charges. Later, uh, one of those was subtracted. And uh, if he serves his whole sentence, he'll be out in the 2040s, a time which, well... Seems impossible. Well, I'll be gone by then. (laughs) (laughs) You might recall the former president's last day in office as Joe Exotic waited excitedly for a pardon which he never received. <laughs> oh right. my God, I that forgot. was that was what a great day that was. And it was such a dual highlight. It was one, watching that person leave. And then two, watching, I think he had hired a limo or something. Oh my God. And they kept cutting to this prison's back parking lot. And they're like, Joe Exotic is waiting for his pardon. Oh my God. <laughs> and you're watching the other side going, but he already left the building. He's not getting that pardon. That's embarrassing. I would love to see that limo, footage of that limo driving away. <laughs> Slowly. Just All the uh, animal-themed balloons go flying oh. out the open back window. You can see the party lights inside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor right. Joe Exotic, but not really. So Doc Antle with the flavor saver. He was another character on the show, and he was located in South Carolina, I think Myrtle Beach. 
And he claimed that his zoo and his nonprofit, the Rare Species Fund, were all about helping endangered animals. The tigers, lions, and other animals were all acquired legally, he assured us, though no one believed him. Well, to no one's surprise, Doc was busted for violating the Lacey Act. The Lacey Act prohibits the trafficking of illegally taken wildlife, fish, or plants, which includes animals protected by the Endangered Species Act. It was found that for at least two years, Doc was managing the buying-slash-selling of a young chimp, two lion cubs, two tigers, and two cheetah cubs. It just so happens that all of those animals are protected by the Endangered Species Act. Some other findings included money laundering, with money it was believed Doc acquired via harboring and transporting undocumented immigrants. He used large sums of cash and faked the paperwork for the sales and covered them up by having the transaction look like it was done through his nonprofit. Wow, illegal animal buying, money laundering, human trafficking. Underage girls. Wow. What a sicko. Crimes against head and facial hair. <laughs> Crimes against my eyes. <laughs> Each count carried a possible sentence of five years and fines up to $250,000 and three years of probation. Doc took a plea deal, admitting guilt. Taking the plea for two felony counts of wildlife trafficking and two felony counts of conspiring to wildlife traffic. In taking the deal, Doc was sentenced to a whopping two years of a suspended sentence. The fee will only be $10,000. Wait, of a suspended sentence? How I'm reading that is he doesn't do jail time? Yeah, that's a suspended sentence. Is oh like, God. you have two years, and if I want to, I'll make you go. But it's like, that's no. such bullshit. Like, if he screws up again, they'll put him in jail. Probably, yeah. See, these people think they can keep getting away with this stuff because they're only charged 10 grand. Exactly. And they don't have to do and jail you get time. Two years of a suspended sentence. So and you get them, two years. The risk of smuggling animals mm -hmm. is low. Like, okay, you'll get caught. We'll put our low level employee in, and he'll get two years. Mm -hmm. Like, what is the incentive here? Come on. I will say this. I love when I hear in the news that somebody's taken out people who like kill animals in Africa. Oh, I yeah, when live the poach, for the, when the, the poacher, poacher hunters. Yep. Those are my heroes. Mine too. Where's that reality show? Mm hmm. The poacher poachers. Catch a yes, killer. Yes. Poacher, poacher poachers. He's also been stripped of the ability to own, sell, trade, work with, or donate any exotic animals in Virginia for only five oh years. Oh, my God. So he could do it in any other state? Just got to yeah. go up to, a, I don't know, North Carolina. <laughs> Who the hell writes these rules? Come on, justice system. He probably won't do it again. I'm sure it was a one-off. He's definitely not addicted to the lifestyle yeah, and the animals and the he's power. He's not been doing all of that for decades. Assistant Director Edward Grace of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said, Wildlife crime is often connected with other criminal activity, including money laundering. This investigation revealed a pattern of illicit wildlife transactions orchestrated by the defendant under the guise of donations and false paperwork. The service and our partners will continue to hold accountable those involved in wildlife trafficking and other related crimes to ensure the future of all federally protected species. The service will continue to bring to justice individuals who profit from the illegal trafficking of big cats and endangered species. Then maybe up the sentencing. I know. It's ridiculous. He's literally saying, yeah, people that do wildlife stuff, it's usually other bigger, worser things. Yeah, they're always connected to the bigger things. Mm -hmm. Give me a break. $10,000. These people make that so easily. Oh, yeah. Big That's... cats, big sentences. Thank you. Well, there you go. 
Bum bum. Thank you, Josh. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The last of the three trials against the paramedics and police who were charged with the death of Elijah McLean recently came to an end. For a refresher, on August 24, 2019, 23-year-old Elijah McLean was stopped by police while walking home from a convenience store. And I'm honestly just in the second realizing it's the exact same story as Manny Ellis. He was easily chilled due to a blood circulation disorder, so even in the summer, he wore coverings and hoods on his head and face. 
When stopped, he told the police that they had no right to do so. The officers then claimed Elijah reached for one of their weapons, leading to him being put in a chokehold. Elijah was knocked out by the restraint. Putting him to the ground, the officers pinned him and called for support. Before being unconscious and after he came to, Elijah begged the officers, saying, I'm an introvert and I'm different. Paramedics Jeremy Cooper and Peter Sishinek were on the scene. Based on what the officers had told them, they decided to immediately give Elijah an injection of ketamine. You may know that drug as it's the same one that killed Matthew Perry. Many were shocked to watch the video of the five first responders sworn to protect as they stood around a handcuffed and overdosing Elijah. Never once did anyone take out medical equipment. He was never checked. The medics did not demand the officers who were shooing them off to move so that they could do their job and help Elijah. They ignored the piles of vomit that they had stepped in, which was caused by the multiple holds that cut off the blood supply to Elijah's brain. It was like they were on a coffee break, but instead of standing around a water cooler, they stood over Elijah's slowly dying body. Before the trial of Jeremy and Peter, the medics, two officers from the incident were acquitted. Another officer, Randy Rodima, was convicted of third-degree assault, a Class 1 misdemeanor, and criminally negligent homicide, a Class 5 felony. He was sentenced in early January of this year to 200 hours of community service, four years probation, and 14 months in jail. At the trial for the medics, the defense presented the phrase that was used to validate the murder of Manny Ellis, validate the drug administration on Elijah, and has since been removed from many states, including Colorado's, training manuals for first responders, excited delirium. It's a catch-all that just means the person they're dealing with is in a heightened state. The phrase was used in the trial to explain the actions of the officers and medics. The state argued that there was no proof of them taking the basic steps that they should have before administering the lethal drug. Instead, they took the word of the officers as to Elijah's behavior before they even arrived. Right before the injection, they should have taken Elijah's pulse, checked the dosage for his small frame, he was only 140 pounds, and moving him from the ground, which could have hindered his breathing. They didn't even monitor his reaction to the drug. It seemed as though they approached the scene with the lens of, oh, this is a bad guy fighting the police, not that he was a patient who needed their help. The state also showed evidence of a cover-up. Medic Jeremy Cooper had originally told investigators and detectives that the reason he decided to give the injection was because of Elijah's active aggression and resistance towards the police, saying Elijah had even tried to get away from the police while they held him down. As that was happening, he claimed to have taken Elijah's pulse and gave him the shot. The body cam, however, shows that Elijah was not resisting. He was lying down on the ground, pretty much unconscious. There was no video evidence of a pulse being taken as the shot was administered. It was clear he knew he had done wrong and was trying to hide his mistakes. On December 22, 2023, Jeremy and Peter received their verdict after two days of jury deliberations. Both were acquitted for the reckless manslaughter charges. However, they were both found guilty of criminally negligent homicide. Additionally, Peter, being the supervisor at the scene, was also found guilty of assault for unlawful administration of drugs and a second-degree assault charge with an enhanced sentence. Because of that enhancement, Peter was to remain in custody, so he was actually taken away in cuffs. Both paramedics have since been fired. It's a nice change compared to all the news we've Ugh, seen. No kidding. These are pretty similar to the charges given to Officer Randy, so it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't end up with similar sentences when they are handed down on March 1st. No one from the families of the medics or lawyers gave a statement after the verdict was announced. 
Some associations of medics and firefighters have cried out. They say that bringing charges like this might cause a medic or other first responder to hesitate when giving treatment out of fear that they could face charges. Now, I'm no expert, but I suppose if the person were to show up and not only actually follow protocol, but be seen on tape treating the person instead of hovering over them, they're probably not going to have those issues. Yeah, the only people that are going to have issues are the ones that don't do their job correctly. Now, I will say there are countries where just random citizens aren't going to intervene and help anyone because the law could possibly come down on them. But not for like a paramedic. You're doing your job. You're doing your job. If I were a paramedic, I would hopefully know of this case. Mm -hmm. And if people are so worried about this case, then maybe they're talking about it. And if you go into the details, you very quickly go, oh, well, then I would just do the not that do what I'm supposed to. Yeah. Like hit this guy was caught lying about what he what actions he took. It's not that he took them and it went wrong. They need to do bias training, too. Like you you should do your job no matter who the patient is. Right. It doesn't matter. Like if you take a murderer to a hospital for treatment for a gunshot wound, they have to treat yeah, them. Medical is medical. Right. It they don't matter. get to go in and go, oh, the cops are saying this. Well, I'm secondary cop. Mm-hmm. That means I'm going to help with the restraint well, or. I think that's what happened is they come on the scene mm-hmm. and they just are assuming this is a, a bad kid. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you have your side. I'm mm-hmm. on the side of them. I'm a first responder. And that's just not how it should work. But it takes bias training. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We're, we're naturally biased by nature. It's just how it works. That's true. Elijah's mother did have a statement to make. As she left the courthouse after the verdict, she lifted a fist in the air and shouted, We did it. We did it. We did it. She later wrote, and I'm assuming this was on her Instagram where she's pretty active, They cannot blame their job training for their indifference to evil or their participation in an evil action. That is completely on them. May all of their souls rot in hell when their time comes. Nice. So, at least for... That portion, you know, I'm not sure if she's pursuing or already has pursued a civil suit, but at least all of the main characters from that incident have now gone through the judicial system and she can, you know, you don't have to go to court all the time or deal with the next hearing or Mm. all of those things. Now it's like get the sentencing and then if there's a civil trial and maybe find a little bit of peace in that. It's sad, but I'm glad she got to see that happen. I'm excited to get to Emily's update because I don't know anything about goings-on of Scott Peterson. You don't? Not an ounce. Oh, girl. Well, yet again, I come bearing an update to a big old case that is recognized worldwide, and that is the murder of Lacey Peterson. Lacey Peterson was a pregnant woman who went missing from her home in Modesto, California on December 24th, 2002. Once the investigation was initiated, her husband, Scott Peterson, became the primary suspect in the case. Months later, on April 13th, the body of baby Connor Peterson was found on the shore of San Francisco Bay. A day later, portions of Lacey's body were located in a similar area. Those of you familiar with the case likely know that the autopsy revealed that Connor was not born, but was expelled from the womb after Lacey was dead and began decomposing in the water. I'm not going to go into details on that. It's pretty gruesome, but you can watch the documentary or go on YouTube. We've discussed coffin births before. Oh, yeah, we definitely have. Scott Peterson was eventually arrested and convicted of the first-degree murder of both his wife and his unborn son. The primary argument for prosecution was that Scott wanted to be rid of Lacey so he no longer had to be a husband and a father. Their case was built on circumstantial evidence, so let's summarize it. 
So why did he want to be rid of Lacey? Well, Scott had an affair, and it wasn't his first, but he had had an affair with a woman named Amber Fry, leading the prosecution to claim that he wanted to get rid of Lacey and his child and be with Amber. Now, Amber played a huge role in the investigation by working with police. During the subsequent trial, it was revealed that Amber had searched the Internet for info on Scott and his case, and this was argued to be consistent with her having concern and suspicion that Scott was involved with the disappearance. And there's a lot more to that that you can learn, but that's kind of the the basics there. He also acted oddly right after she disappeared, noting his lack of emotional response to his pregnant wife going missing. They believe that, paired with his super calm demeanor, was inconsistent with what is expected of a concerned husband. And we've talked about that a lot. You just never know how someone's going to react. And that reminds me of Gone Girl. Mm -hmm. Like, you think you need to act a certain way or you're being coached to act a certain way. It's hard to that's a, that's circumstantial, right? That's not real evidence. Speaking of, you need to watch American Nightmare on Netflix. It's on my list. Okay. It's definitely on my list. Scott also chose to sell Lacey's car after he found out she was dead. So or I think after she found out she was missing. Sorry, I don't think her body had been found okay. yet. He chose to sell the car. Now, prosecution believed this behavior did not align with someone concerned about his wife, but rather someone who's concerned with expenses and getting rid of stuff. Mm hmm. There were inconsistencies in the statements he made to police during the investigation. This included his alibi and timeline of events. Prosecution argued that Scott's timeline and his alibi never made sense. Lacey was reported missing on December 24th, and Scott told police that he had been fishing alone in San Francisco Bay. However, they had evidence that that wasn't the case. The evidence included witnesses whose claim that the day Lacey disappeared, Scott's boat was visible in his backyard, that he wasn't out Mm. on the bay. They also claim that the description Scott gave of the conditions of the fishing trip didn't match the actual weather. Mm. So or the tide, even the tide he described. I mean, mean, that's easily forgivable because it's a traumatic day and you might be misremembering. But the boat, the witness seeing the boat in the yard. And not so much the tide for me, but the weather. Mm. If he's saying, oh, yeah, it was a real lovely day and could go fishing. And then they're like, it was cloudy and terrible. Mm -hmm. That seems a little more likely to be remembered. When he was talking to police during the investigation, he made several statements that were inconsistent with each other, leading police to believe he was lying. There were also claims that Scott purposely misdirected people during the search for Lacey, trying to point them away from where her body was eventually found. Now, there was no direct physical evidence that linked Scott to the crime scene, and there was never a crime scene discovered, I should point out as well. So prosecution believed his actions and his behavior, as well as the circumstances around Lacey's disappearance, just pointed to guilt in general. Scott changed his appearance. I don't know if you guys remember oh, this, but I, I sure did. Oh, yeah. He grew a beard and he mm-hmm. dyed his hair blonde and it didn't look good like that one guy from the Maze Runner. It it looked weird. Chris but... Gaines. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Chris Gaines. What? <laughs> remember Chris Gaines? I do remember Chris. Gaines. Same idea. Same energy. Same look. So basically they were saying he just looks guilty by trying to change up his look. And you know what? My last breakup, I considered dyeing my hair copper. So, yeah. And if you don't have control of things, hair is usually a thing that is changed because it's like the only thing you can control. Yeah. The only thing I can control. (laughs) Sorry to bring it up. My (laughs) hair. 
Now, of course, there was a little escape attempt. On April 18th, 2003, Scott was arrested near the Mexican border, and he had $15,000 cash and his brother's ID and a bunch of camping equipment. So it's kind of hard to argue that that isn't pointing to guilt. Yeah. But if you think about all those things I just said, there's really not a whole lot of evidence. True. So anyway, all of this led up to Scott Peterson being sentenced to death for the murder of his wife and unborn child. He has maintained his innocence the entire time, and many people believe that that's true. In 2017, a six-part documentary called The Murder of Lacey Peterson was aired on A&E, and it was controversial because it presented information that Scott may not be the person that killed his wife. I remember that. I watched that. Did you watch that? Mm -hmm. In the documentary, it was noted several times that police latched onto Scott as the primary suspect, but neglected to take heed of witness accounts detailing that Lacey was seen walking the dog in the afternoon of her disappearance, a detail that could lend doubt to Scott having done it as he was fishing and suggesting some other person may have come across her that day. Now, yes, there was a witness that said they saw the boat, but people are saying these witnesses may not be accurate. I don't trust eyewitnesses. I know, right? And how how much later were they asked about it? Was it several days? Mm -hmm. Because then you don't remember. Oh, yeah. Was that Tuesday that I saw it? Or yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a fact that we misremember things. There have been studies shown. Anyway, here are some of the reasons his guilt has been put into question. The lack of direct evidence. There isn't any physical evidence. That's hard to overlook. There are other theories about what might have happened, which include it being somebody else. So there's the intruder theory. An intruder or a third party was responsible for the abduction and murder of Lacey. And this explains the lack of direct evidence linking Scott to the crime scene and leaves room for the possibility that someone else committed the crime. There's a burglary gone wrong theory. This suggests that Lacey may have been a victim of a burglary gone wrong. According to this theory, an intruder may have entered the Peterson home with the intention of robbery and Lacey was inadvertently harmed during the commission of the crime. Unexplored leads. There are people who believe certain leads and potential suspects were not thoroughly investigated by law enforcement. They argue that alternate avenues were not adequately explored during the initial stages of the investigation. Lacey's past. You know, we're all a fan of those. There have been discussions about Lacey's past and the possibility of her having encountered someone who could have been involved in her disappearance. This theory suggests that factors unrelated to Scott's action may have played a role. Does that mean she had a dark past or, or just someone a former from her lover, past? Okay. a former boyfriend? Not could... that there was anything specific Correct. that she had issues. Yeah, okay. just that she may have already known this person and gotcha. they got involved. And I feel like I remember, did you watch that documentary? I cannot remember if I did or not. I feel like part of it was that several people in that general area, maybe community, had either seen someone that yes, was yes. not right or they weren't been, from the area yeah they weren't from that area and several people saw them and i think even called it in like there is something shady going on yeah and there had even been a couple of break-ins i think yeah so that these are the what i'm saying while people right. are like you didn't follow those leads like, right you latched on to scott and didn't even investigate that properly So as I mentioned, much of the case was built on circumstantial evidence that isn't very strong and many people say not strong enough to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Some of the witnesses have their credibility in question, including people who spoke directly to Scott's behavior and actions. They may not have even known him. Uh, People believe that the media coverage shaped perception of Scott's guilt and influenced his trial. 
I mean, the husband always does it, right? Oh, I remember that Diane Sawyer interview mm-hmm. and he was off-putting. Yep. You cannot judge by the someone's reaction. Yeah. And then every, you know, the jury is tainted at that point. So critics pointed fingers at the investigation saying there were major flaws as well. Not just not following leads, but tunnel vision, I already mentioned. There wasn't any direct forensic evidence. That includes DNA collection and analysis of autopsy procedures being fumbled. And not to be crass, was she dismembered? Um, It wasn't dismembered, but she had been in the water long enough that she decomposed that she was missing like a foot and part of a leg. But it wasn't because I was going to say in her head. She was missing her head. That's never been found. Okay, but yeah, you would think if, you know, if it had been that there would have been something somewhere. Right. So people really do feel like the intense media coverage and public pressure made law enforcement feel like they had to solve the case quickly. And it did. It went rather quickly. And that's the concern. Now, finally, Scott and his legal team have continually fought his sentence. And some of his appeals claim that they have new evidence and procedural issues that impacted his case. So many guilty people fight their conviction. We're used to that. But a lot of them give up over time. And he never has. In April of 2023, Scott and his team filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, alleging that, quote, violations of state and federal constitutional rights and state statutory rights. They also reference newly discovered evidence that points to his innocence. Now, There's always been a lot of movement in this case. After his sentencing, a ton happened. But let's quickly summarize it. In March of 2019, the California governor, Gavin Newsom, issued a moratorium on executions. Then in 2020, California's Supreme Court overturned Scott Peterson's death sentence. Later in 2020, the California Supreme Court decided that San Mateo County needs to reexamine his murder convictions because one juror didn't disclose involvement in other legal proceedings Mm. as they were a victim of another crime, which could cause bias. Oh, boy. So in December of 2021, a judge sentenced Scott to life without the possibility of parole. And in 2022, he was moved from death row at San Quentin to regular gen pop at Mule Creek State Prison. Now, while a lot of people argued back and forth on his guilt after watching that documentary, there's a major reason to really consider it now. And that is the Innocence Project has just picked up Scott's case. So on Friday, January 19th, almost all media outlets reported that the Innocence Project filed documents in courts that week to reexamine the case of Scott Peterson. I find that very interesting. I, he always gave me a yuck. Yeah, he's an icky. But that's just him. That's just a, that's a type of person. He's I a cheater. He cheated on his yeah, wife I would not. I never would have approached him in a bar kind of a thing. Not, oh, he's a murderer. And I do remember those interviews and I remember the frenzy. And this is like not pre-internet, but before social media was used how it is today. And so everyone was watching. You're watching Nancy Mm -hmm. Grace. You're watching the interviews prime time, like OJ level. Yeah. I can totally see that bias. So it's difficult because on one hand you do go, well, statistically speaking, as the husband who's having an affair with a pregnant wife, it all makes sense. You're 90 percent right there likely to be the murderer. However, the more you watch things such as American Nightmare, you can see the exact same pattern of them deciding immediately what the answer is and then working the maze backwards to say, how do we get to the starting point that he is the guy who did it? My thing has always been, I think he did do it, but 
there was not enough to convict him. Right. We have to follow the law as the law is written. And that was not beyond a doubt. Right. Come on. There is no evidence, really. Right. It's all witness testimony from questionable people. Mm -hmm. The timeline. Jurors that are committing perjury. Yeah. So I just think you have to. It can't be. It's not a one size fits all, of course. But you have to follow those rules. And I really trust the Innocence Project. And if they see enough to Put, to put the, it. their limited resources into something such as that. Yeah. We've seen it over and over again. These guys that spend 20, 30, 40 years behind bars and every time they're asked, their story never changes and they never sure. say, like, I did it. So if they feel there's enough there, it well, very well could be. I agree. And, you know, they may come back and say, oh, no. Right. I mean, it takes a lot. This is like it takes a lot for them to get to this point to uh-huh. even take it on. But there's always a chance they're going to be like, nope, we found yeah. that we think you did it. But it could very well come back and be like, ah, we're going to retrial this. Yeah, Yeah, at the very least, let's have a fresh trial that is not under the hot lens and lights of, Mm -hmm. hey, guys, we're desperate to have an outcome. And everyone hates this man. I think at one point he was like the most hated man in America. I mean, he's still pretty hated, but you got to you got to give him a fair trial. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's going to be an exciting year. So we'll have updates as they come in our our future crime and updates episodes but i think there's a lot more to be excited about too Mm -hmm. we have some interesting episodes coming up as always but i will be collaborating with a very special someone in the true crime podcasting community who you might know Mm. so when we were at crime con we had the absolute pleasure of sitting a couple of tables down from true crime garage so of course i had to go meet nick We got to talking about the Pacific Northwest and he inquired about a certain serial killer that we've discussed on the show before. And he is very knowledgeable about that case. So we've since decided to do some recording together and talk about that case. Um, So I'm going to pull up that old episode, rework it. We're going to have some good discussion and you can expect that in early March, I think. Which is so exciting. I'm so excited to work with another podcaster. We mm-hmm. haven't really done that. I've always looked up to him. He's great. I yeah. love his. I listened to his show when I first got into listening mm-hmm. to true crime podcasts. You know, I don't listen to podcasts, but I've heard I a few made of their you episodes. listen to them. Before. Yeah, and I was like, oh, this is good. Yeah, they're great. Uh, and the case that you'll be covering has recently had some major yeah, updates. Yeah, so that's update. very exciting. So it should be. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm looking forward to taking a look at an old script from our first year. Oh and yeah, working it should be fun. <laughs> well, and I'm excited as well because. I have interviewed the son of a potential victim of that same person. So my episode following yours will be kind of connecting it to say, well, and almost like what we were just saying with Scott Peterson, how it was kind of decided it must have been this one thing and then other avenues were not pursued. So, um, yeah, so those will be all connected and that'll be I'm looking forward to that. Me too. And a reminder, Murder in the Rain will be at the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival again this year. And this time we're going to Denver. Heck yeah. We will be there July 12th through 14th. If you want to meet us and all of your other favorite podcasters and vendors and just awesome people in the community, please join us. Let's get weird. And when you get your ticket, don't forget to use the code RAIN15 to get 15% off. It's a great way to connect with podcasts as well as families impacted by cases. And I feel like there's everything there. There's families that are missing people. There's speakers of every caliber, authors and So, yeah, we had a great time last year, and we think you will as well. And we'll have a link in the show notes. So last year they had Julie Murray. 
oh, who uh-huh. gave a talk. And this year they have someone that everyone might also recognize. Their keynote speaker for that weekend is Sarah Turney. Oh. She has the Voices for Justice podcast. Um, some of you might know her from her own case where her sister uh, went missing, Alyssa Turney, and her father was recently arrested for that. Yeah, that was so, her whole thing, right? Yeah. Was capturing Yep. She him. wanted to catch her dad because she knew he did it. Wow. So uh, I'm so excited to meet her. She's amazing. She does amazing things in the true crime world. Um, you know, she has a lot of families on her show talking about what they've gone through. And I just think it's a great way to kind of highlight the empathy in true crime and how things are changing. And this podcast festival is focused on that. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Welcome to another monthly episode update. It's going to be a great day, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to another monthly episode update. Wow. Oh boy, here we go. I'm going to do it in one. Welcome to another monthly... Damn it. <laughs> See? It's hard. Welcome to another monthly update. Ep- okay, I'm out. We'd like to start today with giving some very special thanks use... See? Accusing him of... I'm so scared. We got a girl on the live, Karen. She says she might be the only person who never watched it. <laughs> Good for her. I support There's still time, people. girl. <laughs> so I, the accusation... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, nothing. No, talk to Karen. I'm just talking like <laughs> we're at my house and we're just chatting. I forget we're in the recording studio. You go for it. It's fine. <laughs> Some other findings included money laundering. Eggs. That's another name for the show. Karen said she would watch that. Big cats, po- to big po- sentences. To poach a poacher. To poach a poacher. Um, but big cats, big sentences sounds like another spinoff. I'd like it to be hosted by Chris Hansen. Absolutely. Come on in, have a seat. Were you just hunting that elephant? What about just Hansen? Hansen. <laughs> the group? They're all You can shoot that. They are, and they have like a bazillion kids. They can't take time away from their brood. For a quick refresher on August. There I go adding that D, baby. You always like that D. I love that D. The primary argument for this pro- <laughs> neglected to he- <sighs> 21, a judge, a judge, a judge. I'm going <laughs> to free go <gasps> home and fuck myself. <laughs> Do you like that more than why don't you fuck off and keep fucking off? They're equal. <laughs> okay. I've never heard anyone say anything like that. That's like one of the best things I've ever heard. A great insult. Especially with fuck. Like, I feel like you've heard it used in every possible way. Yeah, not way, like that. But not like that. <laughs> Keep fucking Keep off. Keep fucking off. <laughs> All day, day long. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls.